I'm just trying to put this together saying, hey, what does it, what does the trend look like? And for me, like when I look at this whole totality of evidence, it's like, okay, I have to think LDL is playing some causative factor in atherosclerosis. Welcome back, everybody, to season two, episode four of the Building Lifelong Athletes podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, we're talking about the LDL hypothesis. And what this means is essentially we're laying out the evidence for what we, why we think LDL is such an important factor in atherosclerosis and heart disease. We're going to kind of talk about the studies, the type of studies that we have, and kind of walk through that here. But today, we're talking about that. So let's dive in. Okay, first, we're going to talk about the objectives, right? So the objectives we have for today, we're essentially, I want you, after this talk, I want you to be able to list out the three main types of evidence that support the LDL hypothesis, meaning the three different types of studies. I want to, I want you to be able to demonstrate your understanding and the importance of LDL and atherosclerosis, like why it's important, and then be able to list multiple medications that can be used to lower LDL cholesterol as well. So the importance we're talking about here is, you know, why do we study this? You know, why are we wasting a whole podcast on this, Jordan, you might ask? Well, I think it's really important because it helps paint a picture of the evidence that we have. Kind of, if we take a step back, this is kind of help guiding us to like, you know, where have we come from and where are we currently? This kind of gives the framework or kind of leads a path as to like, why we think what we think. So we're going to cover various landmark trials, you know, big important ones that people talk about. And we're talking talk about the different types of evidence that we have as well. Like I said, for us, this kind of gives us a chance to look at a 30,000 foot view and see the direction of the evidence, right? I think that's really important when we're talking about something that's important as this, you want to step back and say, Hey, what is like the totality of evidence show? And that's what we're hopefully going to go for today. Um, and, and it's important to learn from the past, right? Cause if we have to learn from the past, it's helpful to help us understand what lies ahead for us and what we need to look at and what we need to improve. And like I said, this is just going to be hopefully helpful for you. So you can assess the evidence yourself, understand and say, Hey, this seems to make sense. Uh, we're going from here, or maybe you disagree. That's fine too. But this is kind of the, the way I've pieced it together and the way it's made sense in my brain. And so that's what it's going to be essentially is me putting the other things, the things that I've learned and kind of what I see. All right, so real quick, we're gonna talk about an LDL review. We've gone through this ad nauseum in previous podcasts. If you're interested in that, please go back. I have one all about you know cholesterol synthesis and whatnot and lipid metabolism. So, but just a real quick review here. Cholesterol can be synthesized or absorbed, right? So we can either make it or take it in from what we eat. When it is absorbed, it's made eventually into a chylomicron, and that includes ApoB48, ApoC2, and ApoE as the apolipoproteins that it has. APOC2 then acts with lipoprotein lipase and it cleaves triglycerides to make remnants, right? So then we have these triglycerides, we have these remnants of, of chylomicrons, or essentially chylomicron remnants, and then those are go back to the liver, are taken up and then broken down and they can either recycle or use or whatnot. And then eventually our body, once we have all the components broken down, we build back up some more stuff and we end up building up VLDL. So, but when we assemble this VLDL, once again, remember that we no longer have APOB48, right? That's only with the chylomicrons. When we get the VLDL, we start to have our APOB100 proteins. And that's super important, right? ApoB100, we think these are the atherogenic lipoprotein. So anything that has an ApoB100 can theoretically cause atherosclerosis. And so once the VLDL gets out in the bloodstream, eventually gets degraded by lipoprotein lipase, like we talked about the chylomicrons. So it kind of cuts stuff up and it makes it into IDL. And then IDL has a couple options. It can either, you know, go make hormones, it can go get recycled, or if it kind of hangs around longer, can be broken down further once again by LPL or lipoprotein lipase, or it can actually be acted on by CTAP, um, or it can be made more cholesterol rich by an exchange of cholesterol and triglycerides, and eventually become LDL. And like I said, once it's LDL, we've kind of gotten rid of all the other apoproteins. I've kind of glossed over those, but that does have ApoB100 as well. So going through VLDL, IDL, LDL, all have the ApoB100. And then once we have the LDL, that comes back to the LDL receptor, and that essentially takes it on the liver, and binds the LDL, and then brings it back into the liver to kind of get rid of it, either recycle it or get rid of it or excrete it. And that's why the LDL receptor is so important because if we don't have the LDL receptor or we have not a lot of them, we have a lot of LDL that's recirculating around saying, you know, you're sent you at the airport, right? Looking to drop 
drop someone off and there's no spots. You have to keep circling, trying to find a spot. And that's how it goes. But so that's essentially why it's so important for the LDL receptor. And then on top of that, you know, we talked about LDL, like how we make it and all that. Now we're talking about like the pathogenicity theory. So saying like, why, well, why is an LDL such a problem? Like, right. It's floating around. Like, why do I care? Well, to begin with native LDL isn't a problem. So like the LDL is just floating around just like that's nice, fresh, young LDL. Like it's really not a problem. It's, you know, really the oxidation when it gets oxidized, which is, you know, chemically changed. That's when we have an issue. A lot of times the LDL extensity, what we worry about is getting retained into the artery wall. So like, obviously that's super important. And when LDL gets into the artery wall, it kind of initiates the, the development of atherosclerosis. But like, again, when a native LDL gets in there, it can get in there and it can be okay. You know, it doesn't necessarily induce like what we call like this macrophage and foam cell formation, which we talked about in previous podcasts, but making the early signs of atherosclerosis, it doesn't happen normally. It doesn't happen all the time. So LDL can get in there and they can kind of get cleared. That can happen. But it needs to be oxidized, and then you know that's when we start to have issues. But in a normal, healthy person, we occasionally get that, but you know it can get cleared out. What happens though is when we start to get overwhelmed, right? If you think about it, if we have lots and lots of issues with oxidized LDL in there and it's just too much to handle, then our body starts saying, "Oh, well, we like we seem to calm this down in any way, shape, or form," and that's when we get the macrophages kind of activating and starting this whole cascade of inflammation. You know, once we do get oxidized LDL, it triggers like the whole problem pretty much endothelial dysfunction. So problems with the lining of the artery, you know, decreased nitric oxide, it promotes smooth cell, like into the actual wall of the artery. It, you know, starts creating clots and all these things. So really all that stuff starts happening. It starts initiation of a fatty streak, which is kind of the, the pre start of atherosclerosis and just kind of spirals on itself. So once we start getting oxidized LDL inflammation, it's just like more and more oxidized LDL, more and more inflammation leads up into a plaque. And then a plaque can lead to, you know, issues, whether that's including the entire, you know, size of the artery, or if it's, you know, having a piece of a, a clot break off and then go somewhere else and cause a stroke or heart attack or something like that. So we care about this so much because once the LDL gets in there, and gets oxidized, it's bad news. We don't want that. And so this is what, you know, why we care so much about LDL and why we talk about it ad nauseum. All right. So next we just want to talk about the history of atherosclerosis. So it's kind of like, where, where did we come from? Where are we going? So 1910 states all the way back to here. We had a German scientist who found plaques on the aorta with cholesterol. Kind of looked at it under the microscope and you know, after dissection said, oh, that's cholesterol. And then 1913, a curious scientist in Russia fed pure cholesterol to rabbits and could produce atherosclerosis after he saw it in postmortem discussion. Um, and then 1919, we had someone who was able to show on EKG that you could have changes with patients with non-failed chest pain. So essentially, this was you know an EKG showing like, how to diagnose heart attacks. You know, this is the gold standard now if you go in the emergency department they're always going to EKG because you can see electrical changes in specific patterns when you have a heart attack. And so this is the first time actually kind of showing a heart attack through EKG, which is interesting. And then 1933, uh, we had a, a scientist that fed mice no cholesterol, but they found that they still had it in their bodies, which proved that, oh, we can actually make cholesterol from our own cells. And it's once again started to recognize that our body really needs this stuff. And so we didn't really know what it did or what the role was, but by showing this here, it says, hey, like our body's going to make this one way or another. We're going to obtain it by eating it or we're going to make it, but we need this. And it's kind of a, an interesting study there. And then 38, we started having Dr. Mueller started to see a trend with familial hypercholesterolemia and a huge increase in heart attacks early in life. So once again, kind of noticing this trend that, man, these people have familial hypercholesterolemia, which is a condition, genetic condition where you have like really, really high LDL, like early in life, like you are like, you know, a child and you have like really high levels. And so they started noticing a trend with those people were like having a lot of bad outcomes early in life. And that, you know, we wouldn't expect that. So that's kind of the first start of it. And then moving on to the 1950s, this is when we discovered the synthesis of cholesterol. I breeze over that in our lipid metabolism one, uh, except it's very complicated. There's like 30 plus steps, all that stuff. But uh, now we understood how it was made. And then in 1951, 
we had, you know, some, some people identify the possible risk factors for those who had heart attacks at early age. So they're saying, oh, you know, maybe hypertension, high cholesterol, smoking, family history. They started noticing, hey, these people, like, they tend to have a trend for bad outcomes. And in 1953, at Ansel Keys um, up in Minnesota doing a cohort study, you know, looking at, you know, correlating saturated fat intake with blood cholesterol. And they're kind of the first person to come up with the idea that maybe what we eat and the foods that we eat might have, you know, a role in LDL or cholesterol formation. So that was kind of the start in the ball rolling there. And then in the 50s and 70s had multiple different studies showing that the LDL receptor pathway, um, you know, which is critical for removal of LDL, that they discovered like how it works, right? So they're saying, oh, like we found that LDL receptor, you know, the LDL binds to LDL receptor, gets taken up, all that works. So that's kind of the discovering of that whole process. And then going into 85 here, we found that, you know, the lack of LDL receptor in those with familial hypercholesteremia seemed to fit. And so like we said, the reason they had such sky high LDL is because they had, you know, not as many receptors to say, take up that LDL and bring it back into the cell. So essentially it makes sense why they have so much floating around. And so these are kind of just some big developments as to where we, you know, were with cardiology research and lipidology research. And it takes us to kind of like the more modern area of it now. All right, so in general, we have about three different types of data that I think that kind of point and paint the picture of the LDL hypothesis, right? The first is observational studies. These are always important because they give us a direction to start in, right? Obviously, when we look at observational studies, they can't prove anything, right? But what they're really important for is we say, hey, we look at this group, we see what happens, we start to see like some trends and we think, hey, is there something going on here? You know, like we talked about here early with Ansel Keys or, you know, we'll talk about Framingham. We start to see that you know, these people who had these numbers tend to have these outcomes what's what's the reason why why is this causing this is this there's something causing that we're not sure and so it kind of gives us a launching point for saying hey there seems to be lots of data that you know these people this thing have this thing and so it just kind of gives us the idea of hey we have this association, but we need to now go do definitive studies. And that's where our next type of study comes in, randomized control trials. You know, these are the ones that start giving us confidence that we're on the right track, right? Because we start looking at, um, you know, what happens when we do an intervention. A lot of these randomized trials that we'll talk about, they specifically look at lowering LDL. So different through medications or whatnot, but they say, what happens when we lower this LDL number, this target number, what happens to the outcomes? And the cool thing about randomized control trial is, you know, hopefully those populations are very similar because we randomized them. And then we're just isolating one thing that we change. So hopefully the change is the intervention that we give them usually a medication um, but with these rcts we have we kind of see the trend that there's multiple ways to lower ldl cholesterol and there's multiple meds and they have very similar results in terms of that when they had a significant trend of ldl lowering they seem to have an improvement in their outcomes and then three, we have Mendelian randomization, which is kind of an interesting one. I kind of view this as corroborating evidence for the other two, right? So we kind of have trends and then a little confirmation. And this is just like a cherry on top saying, okay, we have some more, you know, confirmation of this. Essentially what the definition of this is, is for Mendelian randomization, you're using random genetic distribution in people to determine the effect of having that gene. So essentially what we do is we've used Mendelian randomization to notice that, oh, like we looked at some traits and found that people who had... PCSK9 inhibition, which normally PCSK9 um, breaks down the LDL receptor, but those people who had the random gene mutation that the PCSK9 was inhibited, so therefore it didn't break down the LDL receptor, found that they had super low LDL and they didn't have as many cardiovascular you know, problems. And so Mendelian randomization is just saying, okay, we can't randomize people genetically, right? We can't splice them up, but it's saying, we're gonna look at those people who have that genetic trait, right? Like maybe the PCSK9 or those who have like familial hypercholesterolemia, right? They have a gene for really high LDL, 
as they have an issue with the LDL receptor. And we say, okay, we're essentially pseudo randomizing them because we, we can't control That's what happens when, you know, the genes cross over, um, when someone's being made. And we use that randomization to say, Hey, what happened? And we kind of look at the outcome there. So it's almost just another piece of corroborating evidence is how I look at it. All right. Now we're going to get into some of the literature here. This is just a general overview of a few studies that were important. Um, you said one big observational, the rest are going to be pretty much randomized control trials, um, or other, you know, important studies that we have. But, uh, yeah, well, like I said, just a 30,000 foot overview. This is by no means exhaustive. First, everyone talk about is very famous in its name, the Framingham studies. Um, like I said, there's, this comes from this cohort of people in Framingham, Massachusetts, where they looked at a bunch of people there and looked at their outcomes. The first ones were in like the fifties. They're looking at outcomes and risk factors. Um, but from this, like thousands of papers have been produced. It's really impressive. If you just search Framingham, you'll have tons and tons of results, but they've used this huge data set for every single thing you could ever think about looking at you know, various outcomes here. And so, um, first started in the fifties and this is kind of on our start finding risk factors, right? Just looking at associations saying, Hey, it looks like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, smoking are bad exercise is good, which, you know, now that sounds ridiculous, but at the time this is like cutting edge saying, Oh, well, we didn't really thought of this seventies found that hypertension is a risk factor for stroke in the eighties found that high HDL was associated with lower risk of heart disease. Um, that's a whole nother can of worms that we'll, maybe we'll talk about later, but that was interesting. And then in the 1990s found that LVH or left ventricular hypertrophy, which is when one of the ventricles of your heart is a little bigger can lead to heart failure. Right. And they also kind of in the nineties started to make the 10 year risk calculator, which is what we use all the time where we kind of take in some of these risk factors and calculate your risk of having a cardiovascular event within 10 years. And so it kind of helps us stratify people into, you know, what type of risk they have for having cardiovascular disease. Next study we're going to talk about is the 4S study in 1994. This is an RCT, double-blinded, placebo-controlled. Looked at over 4,000 patients with angina, which is exertional chest pain, or a previous heart attack. The average cholesterol for these patients was um, between 200 and 300, give or take. And this is also on like lipid-lowering diet. So, you know, whatever a lipid-lowering diet was at that time. But they were just on like controlling with their diet. And what we looked at here was simvastatin, which is a type of statin versus placebo. And this is a five-year follow-up, which is a pretty decent follow-up. They found that simvastatin reduced LDL, total cholesterol, and raised HDL. They also found that, you know, the relative risk of death in the simvastatin group was 0.7. So relative risk, just real quick, if it were one, that's like what we consider like nothing happened. 0.7 means that was, you know, an improvement in, you know, the risk of death in those people, or if it was above that, like 1.3 or whatever, then we think there'd be an actual increased risk of death, but they decreased the risk of death here. Also relative risk of coronary events was down to 0.66 and overall there's like a, you know, 37% lower revascularization rate. And so overall it showed that simvastatin was safe and improves outcomes in coronary heart disease patients. Next, we're going to talk about the West of Scotland coronary prevention study done in 1995. This was another RCT, placebo-controlled trial, looking at about 6,500 men age 45 to 64, and they're given either pravastatin or a placebo. And so these, these patients, unlike our last ones, did not have a history of myocardial infarction or heart attack. Average cholesterol was about 272, and this was another about five-year follow-up. The endpoints they looked at specifically were heart attack, you know, non-fatal heart attack or death because of coronary artery disease. What they found is the statin lowered cholesterol by about 20% and LDL by 26%. So this is kind of giving us good information. And they also found a relative risk reduction of coronary events of 31%, death from coronary heart disease by 28%, and, you know, death from all cardiovascular causes by 32 and then all-cause mortality by 22%. So once again, the trend was that those on statin groups tend to have better cardiovascular outcomes. Next, we're looking at the CARE trial from 1996. This was another randomized controlled trial. Looked at over 4,000 patients on, once again, pravastatin-40 or placebo. And you know, these patients did have previous heart attacks, so pe people with known previous cardiac, um, you know, 
problems. And average cholesterol was like about less than 240, LDL somewhere between 115 and 174. And endpoints were looking for fatal coronary events or a non-fatal MI. You know, they found a 3% absolute difference and 24% risk reduction um, overall in cardiac problems. Stroke reduced by 31%. Overall, they said, once again, LDL lowered by 32% to an average of like under 100 and, and found that the relative risk reduction of coronary events was 31%. So once again, just additional corroboration. If you look at these images, if you're following along here in the video version of this podcast, um, you're going to see what we call a Kaplan-Meier curve. So essentially, it's showing the kind of the differences between groups. And on the top line, you'll see placebo and this kind of dotted line, the solid line is the pravastatin. And you can see the difference there. On the left graph, we see incidence, which is like, you know, how much this is happening versus over the years. And it shows that the pravastatin group pretty convincingly shows that they did not have um, as much uh, you know fatal coronary heart disease as the people on the left and the right looking at coronary bypass surgery um, you know, or revascularization and once again pravastatin group seemed to have less of that Next, we have the heart protection study. This is another randomized double-blinded placebo-controlled trial. Over 20,000 patients, this one, so this is a big one. And this looked at simvastatin 40 versus placebo. These patients, once again, had a history of coronary disease, arterial disease, or some type of diabetes, and looked at mortality and fatal or non-fatal vascular events. Once again, found a 18% reduction in coronary heart disease death rate and 24% reduction in first stroke or MI. So some decent numbers there. Moving on, we have the PROSPER trial. This was another randomized controlled trial with 5,000 patients taking Pravastatin 40 or placebo. Ages was a little higher here. And so this is looking specifically at elderly people in terms of age 70, 82, history of vascular disease, arterial disease, or diabetes. And um, endpoints here were cardiac death, non-fatal MI, and strokes. Found a hazard ratio of 0.85, which once again, hazard ratio, if it's one means no difference. Hazard ratio of 0.85 means there is an improvement. Um, so less likely to have her death, non-fatal MI, and stroke. And there was an improvement from in all um, outcomes except for necessarily stroke. This is just the risk of having it, but the outcomes didn't matter as much. And so show that statins were also potentially helpful in elderly population as well. So it's kind of a new population that this was talking about. So next we're going to talk about like the reduction of LDL via statins, like specific trials looking at, at that. So the TIMI-22, this is taking place in 2004. This was a non-inferiority study of pravastatin, right? So double-blinded, but non-inferiority meaning trying to show that, hey, this medication is no worse than the standard of care or some other treatment that they're looking at. 4,000 patients were either given pravastatin, um, 40 milligrams, or 80 milligrams of atorvastatin. And so they were looking at atorvastatin and say, hey, is this as good as pravastatin? That's essentially what they're looking at here. This was given people who just had ACS, so acute coronary syndrome, so essentially heart attack, you know, STEMI or NSTEMI, they're in the hospital for this for some, you know, reason. And the endpoints were death from any cause, heart attack, unstable angina, or revascularization, like getting a bypass surgery. The LDL average was about 95 in those people who were taking Pravastatin versus 62 in Atorvastatin, and there seemed to be a 16% reduction in the primary endpoint in Atorvastatin group. And so, um, like I said, it was looking for non-inferiority saying, hey, is this as good as Pravastatin? And it showed that, hey, actually it's not equivalent and it was superiority. And this is a Torvastatin 80 milligrams, which is completely maxed out there. But once again, look on the right in the you know, Kaplan-Meier curve, we have death or major cardiovascular event, and the Torvastatin group seemed to have a significant decrease in those. Next, moving on to the IDEAL trial in 2009. This is another randomized trial, about almost 10,000 patients given simvastatin 20 or torvastatin 80. You know, these patients had a history of heart attack, follow-up was about five years, and the endpoints were major cardiovascular events. The baseline here, the patient's LDL is about 125, which is not too elevated, but with people who have a history of MI should be lower. And what they found is that the LDL got down to like 79 in those in torvastatin group and down to only 102 in the simvastatin group. And, you know, it didn't show necessarily 
that we had significant outcome changes. But once again, showed that like once you're on a higher dose of atorvastatin, um, it did seem to lower LDL lower, which is interesting. Like I throw this one in here because this kind of throws a wrench in there, saying like, well, like there's no statistical significant difference between groups, but there shows trends and stuff. And so this is why it's so important to look at, you know, the whole totality of it. This definitely shows like, oh, if you just saw this picture or saw this study, you'd be like, oh, it doesn't seem to matter at all. Um, but like I said, when we step back and look at the totality of it, we'll have ones like this, but it's good to know this corroborate evidence that this, you know, didn't show what we always show. And so it's a good piece of information to know. Um, but once again, it did show that it does have strong effects of LDL, even though the outcomes here didn't show a big improvement. All right, next we're going to talk about the reversal trial, which is an interesting trial and different from the other ones that we've talked about so far because they're looking at essentially the size of the plaque in artery. So this was a randomized double-blind trial, and what they did is about 500 patients were either given pravastatin 40 milligrams or atorvastatin 80 milligrams, and these patients had symptomatic coronary artery disease. Like, we know these patients had it. They had more than 20% stenosis, and their LDL was about 120s to 210s, somewhere around there. And the endpoints, what they're looking for was the change in atheroma volume via ultrasound evaluation. So essentially what they did, they threw an ultrasound on there to try to look at, you know, what the artery looks like. And they're saying how, what percentage of, you know, that artery is occluded, what's the size of atheroma. So they're actually looking like trying to look inside there and using it as a proxy for atherosclerosis. What they showed is that the pravastatin group had progression, meaning that the atheroma still got bigger, even despite being on the medication, whereas the atorosatin arm showed no progression. So it halted the progression of the atherosclerosis. Pretty impressive. Like, you know, when you think about it, that, that's the gold standard, right? That's like the holy grail. Can we like stop atherosclerosis? And so it seems like it stabilizes and stopped it when compared to pravastatin. All right, moving on to our next study, the asteroid study. This was 2006 done. This was a prospective open label blind endpoint study. This is another visualization study. So essentially we had 500 patients with a baseline IVUS, which is intravascular ultrasound. So once again, looking at the plaque burden and they were given rosuvastatin 40 milligrams. Baseline LDL was about 130 and their endpoints were changed in the atherma volume via that ultrasound like we talked about. And so what was interesting in this is the endpoints were evaluated by an endpoint committee, meaning, you know, like I said, it was blinded, meaning the people did the ultrasound and then a different group, a committee kind of looked at it and said, oh, like, what does it look like? So that's, that's what, like how it was blinded, which is, I thought, pretty cool. They found that the resuvastatin lowered LDL with 50%. In all three measurements they had of disease burden regressed. So they had multiple measurements in terms of how big it was, did it progress, yada, yada, all that stuff. But all three measurements showed disease burden regressed when they were on resuvastatin 40 and so, of course, you know, those are just statin studies, but there are more than just statins out there. So we're going to talk about a couple of their studies that talk about things other than just statins. So the Improve It trial from 2015, very important because what it's showing here is talking about ezetimibe is what the big one was. This is a double-blind randomized trial. More than 18,000 patients with a history of ACS or, you know, acute coronary syndrome in the past 10 days. So like we talked about people who had heart attacks or something like that that were in the hospital. They received simvastatin 40 milligrams or simvastatin 40 milligrams plus ezetimibe 10 milligrams. And we've talked about ezetimibe as a different type of medication, works in a different type of pathway from a statin. So, you know, kind of a combo pill here. And the baseline LDL of those people who were already on statins were about 50 to 100, so pretty darn low. And then 50 to 125 if not on a statin. And the endpoints to look for were cardiovascular events about six years in the future. Uh, essentially what happens in the combo group, the LDL got down to 53, which is crazy low, and then 63 in the monotherapy group. And then in the for in terms of outcomes and the event rates, there's about a 2% absolute risk reduction for the combo group. So for azetamibe plus that simvastatin. And if you look right on the Kaplan-Meier curve, you can kind of see that red line is the simvastatin azetamibe combo treatment, which showed decreased risk of events. And you might be saying like 2%, Jordan, like what? 
what does that mean? That does is that anything clinical? And I say, well, you know, two percent here and there through multiple means can be significant. But I think what this is so important, why this trial was so important, is because it's showing that you can get LDL lowering, you know, additionally on top of by stacking medications, so adding something other than a statin, and seem to improve outcomes in terms of benefits. So like, what it's showing is like, hey, if we continue to stack on. LDL lowering medications that will one lower the LDL more, and then two may have an improvement in outcome. So that's why this was kind of an important one. Next, we have the Descartes or Descartes. I'm not even sure. In 2014 study, another double-blind placebo-controlled randomized study, and what we looked at here is once again azetamibe or statin. So we had 900 patients either on diet alone, and then diet plus some or diet plus some sort of medication. So either atorvastatin 10, atorvastatin 80, or diet atorvastatin and azetamibe. 10 milligrams. So they're always on diet and then diet plus some type of medication. You know, they, they, they were, so that was their baseline, right? So one of those groups, they put them in. And then on top of that, if despite those treatments, their LDL was still above 75, then they're randomly side to either ivalocumab, which is a injectable PCSK9 inhibitor or a placebo. Essentially what they look for here was endpoints and percent change of LDL. So the outcomes they're actually looking for were like LDL does this medication lower LDL. And what they found was that the LDL lowered by 50% in like every single group. And so it wasn't just, um, you know, diet alone had improvements, atorvastatin improvements, you know, all of those ones had lots of improvements. Um, but it did show improvement as well uh, that PCSK9 inhibitors can lower LDL even more. And so what was kind of interesting, this is kind of just a trial like, hey, like what happens when we add a PCSK9 on top of things? Like, do we have more room for LDL lowering? And it turns out that we actually do. Um, but I like this study too as well, because it shows that, like, man, like you can do lots of things, you know, statin medications, statin and azetamibe, diet alone, like you can do a lot of things to control your LDL. Um, and so we're really just adding tools to the toolbox at this point. Next, we have the Osler study. You know, we had one and two, which are essentially clinical trials. This was an open label randomized trial, clinical trial to kind of look for evolocumab, which is another PCSK9 inhibitor. We had over, you know, about 4,400 patients randomized with standard therapy or standard therapy plus, you know, um, therapy. And so, uh, you know, standard therapy is going to be statin essentially but just a regular statin and the endpoints looked at lipid levels safety and cardiovascular events and so ldl was lowered by 61 percent compared to standard th therapy so essentially huge huge drop in the numbers and did seem to lower incidence on the on the right you look at the captain layer that's looking at ldl lowering cholesterol so what this is saying here on the top is standard so that's just where our statins are at so keeping our ldl around 120 and then initiation of the medication just going way down we can see a huge decrease in ldl so once again these are kind of just showing the hey LDL with these PCSK9 inhibitors, it seems like they have a big improvement on that. And next we had the Odyssey long-term study 2015. Once again, another PCSK9 inhibitor trial looking at this time alirocumab. So essentially this is a placebo-controlled randomized trial. We had about 2,300 patients with an LDL greater than 70. They're high risk on max tolerated statin. They, you know, what they did here is either added on the PCSK9 inhibitor or placebo and looked at percent LDL change. And so this is people who are on maxed out you know, tolerated statin. So there's some variability there, right? Some people won't be able to tolerate a full, you know, atorvastatin 80 or whatever medication you have for high intensity statin, but they're on maxed out for them. And then they said, hey, if we add in PCSK9 to an already maxed out patient, can we get lower LDL? And it turns out you can, lowered by about 62%. And if you look at this curve, that's a pretty impressive drop there. You know, the question is what clinical utility these all have. We That's, a, you know, a discussion we can have, but it definitely looks like we can get LDL lower with PCSK9 inhibitors. 
Next, we have the Glagov study, 2016, double-blinded placebo-controlled study with about a thousand people on it. You know, these patients were on statins and then underwent some sort of angiography, right? So a dye study, and half received an injectable PCSK9 inhibitor, the evolocumab, and half received a placebo for 76 weeks. So a pretty long time. And what they looked for here was, you know, outcome change in the atherma volume by that IV US, so the ultrasound. So we're looking at that, and what they saw was that the PCSK9 inhibitors actually decreased burden compared to placebo. So once again, these people were already on statins, so boom, that's the same. And now we're saying, hey, if we give this PCSK9, what happens to our atheroma or our plaque burden? Does it look the same? Well, it looks like with the PCSK9 inhibitor, it actually decreased some of that. All right, now we're looking at a systematic review from 2016, looking at randomized controlled trials, um, looking with, they had a clinical outcome specifically over 300,000 patients from these various trials. And it was looking essentially at the risk for vascular events per one millimole per liter reduction LDL. So in America, we don't use millimole per liter, we use milligrams per deciliter, and that's essentially one millimole per liter is 38 milligrams per deciliter. So they looked at a, when we lower it that much, one or 28 milligrams per deciliter, what happens and found that we have a, a you know, an improvement in our risk. So essentially statins, the other ones like bile acids, ezetimibe, and PCSK9 inhibitors all decrease. You'll see 0 0.77, 0 0.75, and 0.49. Like I said, one would mean nothing, and this shows that all three of them tended to have an improvement or you know towards their outcomes. And so what they found essentially is there'd be a 23% risk reduction for every one millimole per liter decrease in LDL. So essentially, if you lower your LDL by one millimole per liter or 28 milligrams per deciliter, there'd be about a 23% risk reduction, which is kind of a, a cool little way they put it all together. An interesting thing to think about. All right, next, moving on to the four-year trial from 2017, a randomized controlled double-blinded placebo study of more than 27,000 patients who were already at ASCVD and were on statins, but their LDL was over than 70. What they had here was essentially evolocumab or PCSK9 inhibitor versus placebo. They were looking for endpoints like cardiovascular death, heart attack, stroke, things like that. They found there's a 59% reduction in LDL, so like we kind of already know, this is going to lower your LDL, but they also found a reduced risk of cardiovascular events as well. And you look on the right, the Kaplan marker show that there is a difference between the PCSK9 inhibitors and the placebo. Next trial, we're looking at Odyssey outcomes from 2018, another randomized double-blinded placebo-controlled study with almost 19,000 participants. They had a history of ACS, and but their LDL was still over 70, or their ApoB was over 80, or non-HDL was over 100. So they used any of those metrics, meaning you know non-HDL, ApoB, LDL. Um, all three of those are potential markers of risk. And so they looked at those and said, if you're over, you know, one of these markers, you qualify. This was Elorocumab, so another PCSK9 inhibitor versus placebo, endpoint, all the fun stuff we talked about before, cardiovascular death, MI, stroke. And once again, hazard ratio 0.85 in the Elorocumab group, meaning there was a, you know, decreased risk of outcomes happening if you were on the PCSK9 inhibitor. So next we're going to talk about the a study looking at the efficacy and safety of further lowering LDL cholesterol in patients with already low levels. So essentially I've been kind of making this point like, oh yeah, we can keep like lowering it. Keep, keep going. You're good. I don't know if anybody thinks of the SpongeBob episode where Patrick's backing up the boat and he's just like crashing the wall and SpongeBob's like, you're good. You're good. That's like the question. Are we having that where we are just driving LDL lower and lower and lower? And we're just like, yeah, yeah, keep going, but doesn't make a difference. So this was a meta-analysis looking and, you know, at the cholesterol treatment trialist collaboration, which is kind of a group of studies looking at LDL lowering in studies that were randomized trials. So what we're looking for is looking at the risk ratio of major vascular events per one millimole per liter reduction in LDL. You know, the average LDL of these patients was 65.7. So that is pretty darn low. Um, but like I said, what we showed right here is when we had, when we lowered the LDL for statins or non-statins, it was about 0.79. Um, so a, a significant improvement there. Patients got their LDL down as low as like 21 milligrams per deciliter. So that's like infantile low, like babies have it that way. But they started seeing that once we got getting things underneath 60s, once they're getting in there, we did have a reduction in events. So what this trial is showing is that 
as we drive it lower, we tended to have even fewer events. So it does seem like as you continue to lower it, you still have improvement. And that's like kind of like the whole gist of this article. Next, we have the Clear Harmony trial, which is a relatively recent one. This is looking at bempidoc acid, which is a new medication. We didn't necessarily talk about this, but it works on a different pathway in cholesterol synthesis, different from statins. But this is a randomized controlled trial to see, hey, does bempidoc acid work? And they did bempidoc acid versus placebo in a group already on a max statin. And the endpoint was looking at safety and percent LDL reduction. And the LDL was reduced about 16% more with bempidoc acid, and safety profile was similar. Um, and then recently, actually just recently, like a couple weeks ago, this, this Clear Harmony study had a update in 2023 looking at um, biomarkers and they showed an improvement in all biomarkers and had a different 2023 study showing improvement in cardiovascular event outcomes in statin intolerant patients. So like saying if a patient couldn't take a statin or wouldn't take a statin, they tried bempidoic acid um, and they seem to have improvement in their cardiovascular outcomes. So this is just like another piece of the puzzle saying, okay, we've had statins, azetamide, you know, we've had PCSK9 inhibitors, and we've all these different types of medication. Here's another one that lowers LDL and seems to improve outcomes. So it's like, these are the pieces like uh, they're kind of, I'm stacking together saying, okay, like it seems to be like LDL is playing a significant role in causing cardiovascular disease. If you know, every time we lower it, we seem to have better outcomes. And this is an interesting study looking at here, going back a little bit to 2004, this is not a, an RCT, but it's talking about like, how low can we go? Cause a lot of people are like, uh, I'm a little worried that your LDL is 60 or 50. Like, uh, what's going on? Um, what I looked at here essentially is kind of a cool article. The average LDL in America is about, you know, 130. Total cholesterol 200 plus. This is America. Um, you know, land of the Twinkies. That's what we do. But it showed that in other tribes throughout the, you know, the world or other people, like, if they're untouched by our typical Western diet, you know, could have cholesterol as low as 95, you know, on average, like to 140. That's a total cholesterol. Um, you know, we've seen, seems like in studies that atherosclerosis progression starts to happen when we get above 67. So that threshold, so 67, 70 is when we start to see atherosclerosis and below that, we don't seem, seem to have that. Um, but except in multiple studies, we've shown that people can get as low as 21. And so what this uses is more of like a kind of like a useful guide for us, meaning like, Hey, what's going on? Like how low is too low? And I guess we don't have an answer to that yet, but it's saying, Hey, we have like documented history of people who are, you know, living in other places that are untouched by our modern society and risk factors and stress and all that stuff. And their LDLs are getting pretty darn low, you know, low to the point where it'd be what we're going for here, but low saying, Hey, like it's low and they're doing fine functionally. So like we probably have a theoretical basis for getting there. Obviously just having a theoretical understanding of like, Oh, like it seems like, okay, like that's not what we should hang our hat on, but you know, it just helps give us reinforces that, Hey, with that and the combination of the outcomes and saying, Hey, it looks like people are doing okay as we get lower. So it suggests that lower is typically better. Um, but like once again, it's kind of just a, an interesting study. And finally, we're gonna talk about some Mendelian randomization studies. Um, like I said, like I mentioned before, this is kind of like the cherry on top. This is, you know, what we're looking at here is a meta-analysis of nine polymorphisms. So essentially nine polymorphisms and six genes. So kind of genetic components and what happens on the long-term exposure for coronary artery disease and you know, when compared to statin use for LDL lowering. So this is looking at these people who had this genetic variation from their birth versus those who were given a statin-lowered medication or a LA-lowered medication later in life. So this early versus later intervention. Essentially, all the polymorphisms were associated with reduction in coronary heart disease You know, per unit lower LDL they had. The long-term exposure of the lower LDL was associated with a 54% risk you know, of CHD for each millimole lowered. So essentially, what happened is when you lowered a millimole per liter or 37 eight milligrams per deciliter. When you lowered that LDL, it was essentially, you know, a big multiplier later in life because you're lowering it from, you know, birth, right? Essentially age with this polymorphism. So what it's saying is 
the longer term exposure to a lower cholesterol led to a decreased risk in, in heart attacks and coronary heart events. So like I said, there's a three times greater reduction in coronary heart disease per unit lower LDL than seen with statin therapy later in life. So even when we're comparing early to late, like intervening early seems to have, you know, compounded or multiplied effects compared to later in life when we're doing that, which kind of makes sense if we talk about if it's a, if it's a lifelong accumulation, the earlier we get to that, you know, the less problems we'll have later down the line. All right, so for the last study we're gonna talk about here, this is looking at a Mendelian randomization study at the NPC101 or HMG CoA reductase gene. So essentially what this is saying is like, this is where ezetimibe or statins work for their mechanism of action. So this study is kind of looking at like those people who have genetic changes where essentially they're on either ezetimibe or statin or both, what happens to their cardiovascular risk? Long story short, it sounds like it looks like decreases a little bit. The NPC101, it lowers your LDL by about 2.4 and your risk of, you know, coronary heart disease by about 5%, or same thing with statin, about 2.9 lowering of the LDL and about 5% lowering risk of CHD. Put them together, add on, you know, both of these genes was about 5.8 milligram per deciliter lowering of the LDL and about 10 or 11% lower risk of um, coronary heart disease. And so it's kind of an interesting one saying like, hey, what happens if we lower LDL from the get-go? It seems to have some improvement in cardiovascular disease. Okay, so let's put this all together, right? That was a rapid fire ton of studies. I wanted to just have these out there so you can look at it. You can hopefully use this as a resource and say, hey, what's going on? Like, what was that study you talked about? And you can hopefully, you know, use this as a launching pad so you can start, you know, looking at yourself, looking at the data. But this is kind of my brain dump of what's going on. This is a cool picture here showing a bunch of those really important studies we talked about, right? The four-year Odyssey outcomes, all these ones that we've talked about and kind of plotting some different charts here. And you can see, you know, these are all landmark studies together. The left is showing the relative risk reductions um, of the different trials, showing that, hey, we're having some relative risks down to like 30, 40%. And I know people will say, Jordan, it's relative risk. What's the absolute risk? And it's like, oh yeah, that's a very fair question. That's a very fair question. But I'm not necessarily saying definitively that, you know, the absolute and relative risk, that's a discussion for, for another time. But what this is showing, I'm trying to, you know, paint my picture of, if, you know, the LDL hypothesis are showing, even if it is relative risk, right, we're seeing a consistent relative risk decrease when we lower LDL in terms of, you know, cardiac outcomes. And so that left one showing that pretty much all the trials, you know, a couple of them had, you know, the aim high went a little above, but most of them, you know, the giant trend showing that we have an improvement in relative risk in cardiovascular disease when we lower LDL. On the right, it's showing the percent of cardiovascular event rate, which as you see, the x-axis shows LDL and then the event rate goes up on the y-axis and as we go higher we seem to have an increase in event rate right and so that's once again showing like the higher LDL we have we tend to have more outcomes and bad outcomes and so once again I'm just trying to put this together saying hey what does it what does the trend look like and for me like when I look at this whole totality of evidence it's like okay I have to think LDL is playing some causative factor in atherosclerosis. You know, I think that most people will say that, hey, LDL is definitely playing a factor. And, you know, I think you can't academically be honest or have integrity and say like LDL plays no factor. It does because we know in the studies that LDL gets in the wall, causes it. How much does LDL matter? You know, that's up for debate potentially for some people, but I think it shows definitively that like, you're playing with fire if you're just consistently having your LDL elevated. You know, I think that having them around, having the LDL particles around seem to trend in the direction of leading to bad outcomes. And the low, more you lower that, the better outcomes you have. And so for me, like when I step back and look at all this stuff, like I said, it, it, it just tends to look that way. And this is kind of the, some graphics representing that. And so take home here, 
like I said, we had observational randomized control trials, Mendelian randomization showing that LDL seems to play a direct role in atherosclerosis. There's now a ton of different ways to lower our LDL, you know, whether that's through statins, is that my PCSK9 inhibitors or benpidoic acid. Um, the goals of this lowering will depend on your history, whether you have cardiovascular disease, history of heart attack, all these different things, but you know, typically we're gonna be shooting for pretty low numbers. And then the general outcome seems to be that every millimole per liter reduction in LDL reduces your events by 10% in the first year, and then about 20% in year two, and then they're cumulatively adding up, will probably decrease things by like 50 to 55% by like 40 years. And so that kind of fits in with the theory that, you know, it starts as we're aging and as we continue to progress, it kind of builds up and accumulates over time. And so for me, I hope this was helpful for you. Like I said, I know this was a rapid fire, like, oh my gosh, there's so many studies, but that's like what the the whole lipidology like sphere is. There's just so many, so many studies um, to look at. But like for me, this kind of paints the picture that LDL looking at observational, randomized control, Mendelian randomization, it seems to show that when we decrease LDL, we seem to have improvement outcomes. And so that's kind of like where modern cardiology is at this time and like the thought behind those things. And that's I just wanted to like lay it out there saying this is what's out there. So all right, so thanks so much for sticking with me here. I know there's a lot. I know I flew through that, but I really appreciate you. If you found this helpful, it would mean the world to me if you like liked, commented, subscribed, or share this with a friend. Like that'd be the best way to get this out to people. I'm trying to you know help as many people as I can. So if you found this helpful, sharing it would mean the world to me. Uh, but thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you have a great day. Now get off the computer, get outside, and enjoy the rest of your day. Disclaimer, this podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The topics discussed should not solely be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any condition. The information presented here was created with an evidence-based approach, but please keep in mind that science is always changing, and at the time of listening to this, there may be some new data that makes this information incomplete or inaccurate. Always seek the advice of your personal physician or qualified healthcare provider for questions regarding any medical condition.